Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's episode includes three lectures that were given at Utrecht University's platform Security and Open Societies, who hosted the event Facing Radicalization and Extremism in Times of Societal Unrest, New Threats, Old Practices. On the 14th of September, Lorne Dawson, Professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies at the University of Waterloo, Sofia Moskalenko, Programme Specialist at the United Nations Office for Counterterrorism, and Gais van den Bos, Professor of Social Psychology and Empirical Legal Science at Utrecht University, discussed the rise, development and decline of various extremist movements. In particular, they pay attention to the translation of existing knowledge on radicalization into practice. Amid various global crises and the decline in citizens' trust of their respective governments, new extreme movements have emerged at both ends of the political spectrum. Some groups distrust the ruling power and seek to violently overthrow their rules and systems. Other groups become increasingly isolated from society, fueled either by conspiracy theories and fake news, or focus their discontent on fellow citizens. As an effect, the threat they pose to democratic societies has become more diverse and multifaceted. At the same time, these movements share a challenging characteristic. They have emerged from the mainstream of society, not the fringes. These developments confront government institutions, scientists and practitioners with a new reality, What has caused these new threats to rise? And why now? And how can we adapt and apply existing knowledge on prior threats to the more diverse spectrum of today's violent extremist movements? Or do we need to change our perspectives and the course of action? First up is Sophia, who discusses her latest book, Pastels and Paedophiles, written together with Mia Bloom. She introduced the audience to the world of QAnon and exposes how countless ordinary Americans have fallen into the trap of this conspiracy theory. As with the incels that Sophia studied, the image of citizens with irrational fears and mental health problems is strongly prevalent amongst QAnon supporters. Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me here. Um, and this is just a very exciting opportunity to meet some colleagues that I've cited and you know read for years. So. Very, very excited. And so I'm going to talk to you today about the evolution of radicalization. And I'm going to start by patting ourselves on the back. And by us, I mean the field of terrorism research uh, for the giant leap we've made um, in understanding and predicting terrorism over the past 20 years. Um, Andrew Silke analyzed all of the peer-reviewed publications that came out since 9-11 and compared them with the volume of similar publications before, and he found a 700% increase in the number of academic work that's been done since then. 
So we've really made strides um, in our understanding of the kind of terrorism that started us on this path, which is the kind of terrorism that the 9-11 bombers represented, the Al-Qaeda terrorism. And these kinds of terrorists were very particular. So they typically were organized into a hierarchical structure with a clearly identified leadership where the agenda of the group and ideology and group plans flow from the top to the bottom to the foot soldiers. These kinds of groups tended to be small. We call them cells. They tended to be face-to-face -face groups um, that existed largely in isolation. And as a result, the most potent mechanism of radicalization for this kind of terrorism was group dynamics, or what Mark Sageman famously called bunch of guys type of radicalization. And lastly, some research from my brilliant colleagues around the world demonstrated that this kind of terrorist was on average less likely to have any kind of mental health issues than a person randomly picked off the street, which makes sense if you consider the kind of secrecy and reliability and planful strategic action that was required of this kind of terrorist. But because we were so good at understanding and predicting these kinds of terrorists, and because we shared our knowledge with policymakers and security officials and police, and police who were hunting these terrorists, over the past 20 years, we pretty much eradicated this kind of terrorism. You don't see a lot of Al-Qaeda type groups around anymore. That's thanks to us. We created kind of a bottleneck because we can now trace these terrorists through their banking transactions, through their communication, network analysis. The way evolution works is when you create a bottleneck, you restrict certain kind of expression, you don't take care of the trait, right? So people with radical ideas, people with radical intentions didn't just disappear. We didn't bomb them out of existence. They just can't participate in these kinds of groups anymore. And so, as evolution does, you know, we found ourselves in a new paradigm. This new kind of radical that we are seeing today is very different from the radical that we've grown to know. Namely, these new groups are typically horizontally structured. It's a grassroots movement without a clearly identified leadership with individuals everywhere sharing ideas and anyone's ideas is good or as important as anybody else's. These tend to be massive followings numbering in the tens of thousands to tens of millions as opposed to just tens, right? Um, and instead of being radicalized in group dynamics within small face-to-face -face groups, these people are typically radicalized online through radicalizing materials specifically designed for that purpose or through their connections with people who express radical ideas and share them. Unlike terrorists of the past, these people, and we hear this from every ideological direction, be it jihadist or right-wing or accelerationist, they tend to show signs of mental illness a lot more than a, compared, like a comparison group of just a random person on the street. So I'm gonna tell you about two of these new age type groups that I've been researching, um, QAnon and incels. I'm gonna tell you about four interesting similarities that I see them sharing. I'm gonna tell you what that might mean and where we can move on from this now that we find ourselves in this new paradigm. So incels stands for involuntarily celibate. 
It's a group uh, based online of mostly men. The estimates for uh, its size range between about 10 and 20,000. It's spread around the world. Um, they believe that the society has unfairly deprived them of the ability to form sexual relationships with women. And the reason they believe uh, this is happening is because feminist ideas have become mainstream and shaped the cultural agenda. Um, and so they have a grievance. Um, and a number of incels have engaged in uh, mass casualty attacks uh, in the name of righting this wrong, in the name of justice for incels, and left behind manifestos where they outlined their ideology and called on others to follow in their path. And indeed, we have copycat attacks, not often, but regularly around the world from incels. So that's group one. The second group is QAnon, um, which is kind of an abbreviation between Q, it's the highest level of security clearance in the US Department of Energy, and ANON, which stands for anonymous. Um, it unites between 15 million and 45 million American adults. This is based on large national polls representative of the American population. So between 15 million and 45 million American adults believe in QAnon's set of debunked conspiracy theories that include the idea that the Earth is flat, that there are lasers in outer space that are controlled by Jews that are used to burn wild forests, that COVID is a hoax and COVID vaccines are either tracking devices or poison. But most central of their tenets is the idea that there is a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles that includes notable Democratic politician in the, politicians in the US such as Bill and Hillary Clinton, as well as Hollywood celebrities like Tom Hanks and Lady Gaga and Oprah and even the Pope. And this cabal reportedly kidnaps children, tortures them and harvests their blood for the substance called adrenochrome, which if you ingest it, it gives you pretty much magical powers. And they believe that Donald Trump is secretly fighting the cabal and will eventually bring them to justice, publicly execute them and take power and restore America to the glory that it was in their imagination. So most people learn about QAnon after the January 6th attempted insurrection in which many of them participated and two of them died. The only two people died, who died at that event were QAnon followers. One was uh, Roseanne Boylan, the other one was um, Ashley Babbitt. And over 100 other QAnon followers were indicted or already um, uh, imprisoned for their illegal actions at that event, including attacks on police uh, forces. So two radical groups very different in a lot of ways, including their ideology, but they share four similarities. I'm gonna name them and then I'm gonna go over them one by one briefly. So one, they both carry some set of pseudoscientific ideas within their ideology. Two, there is an element of absurdity um, that they you know, share with each other in the world as, as part of, of their ideas. Three, they both reject women's rights. And four, they both are marked by a very high prevalence of mental health issues. So specifically, pseudoscientific ideas. Well, clearly the idea that the Earth is flat, that there are space lasers, that COVID is a hoax, it goes against anything and everything we know from modern science. Um, likewise, incels use this uh, you know, ham-handed version of phrenology to justify their beliefs that inceldom is an inborn condition 
And even though 200 years ago we may have thought that phrenology was a science, we've since pretty much come around the corner and realized that it's not. They also take evolutionary psychology and twist it beyond recognition and beyond all relation to facts and use terms of phrase from it to justify um, their beliefs about the injustice done against incels. Why this commonality among these, these very different groups? Um, I think one way of understanding it is that what they're telling us by, by expressing their ideas uh, about pseudoscience is that they don't think that science is the arbiter of truth. They think that in order to understand what reality is and what the world is like, science is not what has the answers. Something else has the answers. For QAnon, it's Donald Trump, you know? Um, but basically, it's the rejection of science-based knowledge, right? Absurdity. So, you know, QAnon followers talk about these human-lizard hybrids that exist among us and threaten to take over the Earth population, and so we have to root them out and kill them, ideally. And in particular, they claim that Hillary Clinton is a human-lizard hybrid. Um, and, you know, in my interviews with them, I, I swear there's an element of tongue-in-cheek when they talk about these things. I know for a fact that some of these people who are highly educated and completely of sound mind don't actually believe it. So the question is, why then do they spread this idea around? Um, likewise for, oh, sorry, for incels, you know, they claim that eventually, you know, very soon, they will take over the, the, the government and they will take account of every woman alive and they will assign each man a woman to be their girlfriend, of course, including incels. So it's laughable. But I mean, even for incels, it's kind of like they, their posting online is characterized by experts by what they call shit posting, which is posting something that's very provocative and probably the poster themselves don't believe that it's true, but it's posted in order to elicit arguments and attention and conflict, right? So why this absurdity in the narratives? Um, I mean, one possibility, just to throw it out there, is that it's kind of like a, a, a loyalty test. So unless you're willing to say out loud something that makes you look ridiculous, it, you know, we, we won't take you into our ranks. And it just so happens, we know from psychology, that when people say something embarrassing in order to belong to a group, they develop what we call cognitive dissonance, which makes them like that group more Right? So it's kind of a, um, a double-edged sword or a win-win for the radical groups to insist that their members spread absurdist ideas um, in order to belong in these groups. Um, now, next one is both of these reject women's rights. Of course, for, for incels, it's obvious. They, they think women should be governmentally assigned to men to have sex with them, pretty much to be their sex slaves. Um, QAnon followers have this idealized idea about how the world is going to be once the cabal is taken down and how the world is going to be, they think, is going to be kind of like the United States in the 1950s as these television shows have portrayed um, with white women, you know, in nice houses making dinner and taking care of kids, not working, not getting an education because, you know, that's a man's job. So they cling to this um, idealized version of the past 
and presented as the future. So why all of a sudden, you know, this commonality between these two different groups, considering that QAnon is more skewed toward women. It's, it's probably 60-40 women to men ratio of, of people who believe in it. Um, one possibility, it's an expression of, of nostalgia. You know, we're living in a rapidly evolving world. A lot of people feel uncomfortable and anxious with all the changes, um, social changes, technological changes, political changes that, um, that they're living through and they don't know what the future is gonna be like. And so, you know, expressing a desire for, for the past is kind of understandable. Um, it also could be that this is a mark that this expression is a mark of authoritarian personality, which is a trait that, um, you know, when a person is high on this trait, they tend to divide the world into those who are powerful and those who are not. And they tend to be reverent to the powerful ones and dismissive toward the ones without power. And in this division, women inevitably, women, women Jews, minorities, end up in the bottom category. So maybe it's a sorting, um, correlation, uh, sorting into these radical groups um, correlation. And last, mental health issues. So these are data from, from my research actually and from Mike Jensen's research on QAnon followers. The first bar is from case, study of about, case studies of about 100 QAnon followers that I did um, with uh, the bar representing the rate of diagnosed psychopathology among these people, so previously diagnosed. And it's about 58%. The second bar in orange is Mike Jensen's data from Pyrus database, which assembled data from all the QAnon followers who were present at the January 6th insurrection. And this is the rate of previously diagnosed psychopathology among those, which is 68%. And you have here for comparison, the National Institute of Mental Health data on a representative survey of 150,000 of American adults, among whom the rate of diagnosed psychopathology is 20%. So you see it's about a threefold difference with QAnon much higher on diagnosed psychopathology, which is probably an underestimate than an average American adult. And a similar picture emerges among incels. This is also from my data, a survey of about 300 self-identified incels where we asked them about both diagnosed and self-reported um, depression, anxiety, and autism spectrum disorders. And you can see the staggering rates of depression and anxiety that are approaching asymptote. You know, 95%, 93% of respondents said they had it. And a just mind-boggling 74% of people who expressed some presence of autism spectrum disorder symptoms. Um, compare that, the orange bars are, again, National Institute of Mental Health data on both self-reported and diagnosed and you will see how big the difference is, especially I draw your attention to the autism spectrum disorders, which is possibly um, one of the causes for people joining incel spaces online, because a lot of these people also report a history of severe bullying in school, possibly because they have autism spectrum disorders, can't fit it socially, end up really isolated, feeling really aggrieved, and find like-minded people in these spaces. So, um, oh, to add insult to injury, not only do incels experience more mental health issues, they're also less likely to get help, um, so, sorry, less likely to experience relief from psychotherapy when they get it. So um, the 
first set of bars is the percentage of formal diagnosis and incels in blue versus American adults in orange. And the second set of bars is out of those people who have gone to psychotherapy, what percent found it helpful? And it's 75% for American adults, but it's only 6% for incels. So the solutions we have in place are not working for these people. We need different tools. Um, so why is it happening now? Well, I already said you know, one reason, right? We've created a bottleneck, and that's just what happens when you create a bottleneck. It pops up in a different place. Um, of course, we can't discount the role of the new technology, namely the internet, the social media, and the smart devices that we all have in our pockets that made our ability to connect with people who share our ideas, however obscure, however far away they are in the world, just that much easier, right? Um, I already mentioned the, I think, very important role uh, of the rapidly changing world and the anxiety and alienation that these changes produce in a lot of people. And we know from psychology that anxiety, fear, alienation, all contrib contribute to radicalization. The pandemic didn't help. Um, Beatrice will, I hope, corroborate, but historically, major health epidemics always, always precipitated radicalization. So the blood death gave us witch trials for a couple of hundred years. The Russian flu, which was the first in instance of coronavirus in Russia, resulted in publication of Protocols of Elders of Zion, which led up to hundreds of pogroms with we don't know how many Jews killed as a result. Um, pandemics have this effect for many reasons, but one of them we know from psychology experiments, and that is we're a biological species. And over millennia of our evolution, we have developed psychological mechanisms to protect us from infections. And so when you remind people in the lab of the fact that there are viruses in the air or bacteria on surfaces outside of any pandemic, you then find that people become a lot more ethnocentric, which means they are a lot more aggressive and rejecting of any kind of other skin color, language, behavior, ethnicity. We just want to form a cocoon with our family to stay safe. That is a biological imperative. And of course, something as huge as pandemic magnifies that however many fold. Um, Mass migrations caused by a lot of wars and the globalization, um, you know, Iraq war, Afghanistan war, Syrian war, Ukrainian war, plus climate change, which we'll, which we'll touch on, bring all of these strangers with their strange cultures into our land and bring a lot of questions as to, are they, are they gonna take over our jobs? Are they gonna take over, over our women? Are they gonna take over our children's futures? which of course all contribute to radicalization. And finally, I think we can't talk about radicalization today without ignoring the climate crisis that we're all living in. If for no other reason than because in psychology we have a wealth of data that show a very strong correlation between the weather outside, how hot it is, and the prevalence of violence and aggression, and humidity, and the prevalence of violence and aggression. And all of these extreme events and the number of, of hot days that we have are more frequent than ever in our lifetimes and you know, in other people's lifetimes too. And so we have to keep that in mind that you know, this is an important factor. So to conclude, I wanted to leave you with three thoughts, two of them kind of realistic and one maybe optimistic. So the first realistic thought is 
This kind of evolution is completely normal. If you consider the banking industry, which is trying to keep you know, fraudsters at bay, you see this back and forth all the time. They develop technology to you know, stop one kind of fraud, a different fraud springs up. So you know, we're at a moment, historically, where we've won the last round. We've taken care with the knowledge we acquired and policing uh, approaches we developed of one kind of radicalization, one kind of terrorism. We're in a new round now, so we need new tools. The second thing is that the tools we've developed last time um, are not gonna work this time. So George W. Bush famously said to justify his policy of you know, invading Iraq and Afghanistan, we're gonna fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Surprise. They're over here now. And we can't bomb our way out of it, and we can't Guantanamo our way out of it, and we can't war our way out of these people who are next door neighbors, coworkers, friends, and relatives. We have to approach this problem very differently than we've approached the last problem. And the last thing, which is an optimistic maybe view, is that luckily for us, the way to approach this problem, maybe, is to benefit all of us, not just to solve the problem of radicalization, but if you think about it, you know, mental health issues are afflicting not just radicals, but all of us. In the United States during the pandemic, the rates of self-reported depression and anxiety quadrupled, going from 10% of Americans reporting them to 40% of Americans. A similar picture was observed pretty much around the world. We're all stressed and we're all dealing with a lot and developing tools that would help to reduce radicalization would also help us as a society. Alienation is not a problem that's just bringing you know, attention um, of, of isolated and bullied young men to incels. An average American adult now, I'm sorry, I'm speaking about American data because that's what I know best. American um, men, on average, have zero close friends today. 40 years ago, they had about two close friends. On surveys of loneliness, 40% of Americans score on the highest end of the scale, extremely lonely. This is really bad because alienation is an actual health condition that is as bad for you as is smoking a pack of cigarettes. Results in the same kind of consequences to your heart, your diabetes risk, and all of these other things. So if we design systems that will reduce alienation, not only will we reduce radicalization, we will actually be building a stronger society. And of course, climate change is affecting all of us. So, you know, addressing it, we would also be addressing radicalization. Thank you very much. Gaze van der Bos spoke about the role of trust in societal and political institutions and the consequences of a decline in trust. The trustworthiness of government, the press and science has come under pressure in recent years, due in part to the COVID-19 crisis and the surcharge affair. This leads some people to growing insecurity, which in some cases manifests itself in radical action. Thank you. Uh... Beatrice for these nice uh, words and thank you all for uh, allowing me some time to, uh, to speak about my uh, current research. Um, as Beatrice already uh, told you, uh, in uh, earlier research I tried to combine my uh, dual appointments in sociology, uh, which is the field that studies what people think, feel and do in societal uh, context 
with my work at uh, the law school, especially uh, focused on radicalization leading into violent extremism. So that people somehow are tempted to, uh, to break the law, start engaging in illegal kind of behaviors, uh, start to feel a certain kind of disdain for the rule of uh, law, um, and also uh, start to develop uh, issues of uh, distrusting uh, uh, those who work for the law or work for governments or other social uh, institutions. And uh, what I would like today is zoom in a bit more on these uh, issues. So my earlier work focused really on uh, perceived uh, judgments of unfairness, uh, injustice, immorality that you or your group are perceiving and that uh, contributes to uh, various types of radicalization processes among uh, jihadists, among right-wing extremists, left-wing uh, extremists, uh, corona activists, etc., etc. Um, today, today I would like to, uh, to deepen uh, those uh, issues by focusing on what is really bothering uh, me. Namely, that uh, there is a lot of uh, weakened uh, trust in uh, institutions, uh, agencies that are uh, aimed to hold our society uh, together. And I think perhaps the combination of sociology and um, adopting some legal perspectives might help, uh, might contribute also to the uh, understanding of radicalization processes and perhaps also what we can try to do about it. Um, let me uh, first define some core uh, concepts so that we are uh, on track on what I, what I mean with uh, some core issues here. So first of all, I'm focusing on social institutions, with which uh, we refer to mechanisms that govern the behavior of people within a community or a society, with the purpose of giving direction uh, to important rules that direct or are supposed to direct people's behaviors. And quite often, and also in my research, we focus on formal institutions. Institutions that are created by law and or custom and that have a distinctive permanence in ordering social behaviors. And that's what my main line of reasoning is focusing on. Uh, formal institutions such as uh, the legal system, uh, governments, uh, also science as an institution. But you, you also, importantly, you also have more informal uh, perspectives, focusing on informal institutions, uh, such as stable, valued, recurring patterns of uh, behavior that are important in society. I am especially interested in uh, those uh, social institutions, uh, for instance, how well they are functioning uh, objectively. Uh, that would be a topic of another, uh, for another uh, talk. Uh, right here, I'm uh, focusing on how people are perceiving these so social institutions and especially how they are perceiving it in terms of trust. And how I define of trust is that it is the conviction that others are well-intentioned toward us. Uh, we, uh, that, that these others, including uh, social institutions, will consider our interests if possible and will not harm us intentionally if they can avoid doing so. And importantly, one final concept that I also would like to uh, define here explicitly is the rule of law. Because I think that, uh, especially in earlier forms of possible potential radicalization or people or groups of people who might be tempted later on to start uh, 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 thoughts 
feelings and behaviors that uh, we ultimately will associate with violent extremism, then sympathy for the rule of law, respect for the rule of law, or vice versa, a certain disdain for the rule of law, it's not really valid, those are important uh, issues. And how I define of the rule of law is that uh, uh, it is uh, important uh, to first of all stress that adopting a somewhat skeptical view on, on the legal system and power holders is not wrong at all. It's quite uh, often quite appropriate and indeed warranted. And indeed, for instance, the legal system works on these, let's say, moderate, skeptic uh, kind of attitudes. Okay, well, do not trust power holders automatically. And furthermore, I would like to highlight that uh, and make that point explicitly. Some social institutions do not work uh, well at all. They underperform or they even malfunction in important ways. And thus, these kinds of social institutions should be viewed even more critically with a keen eye towards necessary improvements. In short, uh, uh, going back to Hobbes and uh, all modern kind of philosophers, uh, for example, uh, it can be good and quite appropriate to follow those who hold positions of power in society critically or very critically. And that's not necessarily a sign of radicalization. However, some people overdo it. Uh, so, uh, uh, especially, uh, Sophia was already also mentioning it, uh, uh, what, what uh, is uh, getting our attention is what is happening, for instance, in Hungary, where there's a certain disdain for the rule of law in Poland, uh, in this country, the Netherlands, but also, for instance, in the United States, where on January 6th of last year, uh, people really uh, stormed, let's say, the, the, um, the, the, the government uh, symbolic uh, parliament, uh, parliamentary uh, buildings uh, there. Uh, because they uh, were really set dissatisfied with how important uh, political things worked out in their, to their disadvantage. And these kind of people, uh, indeed, uh, who uh, might be associated in, in important ways with psychopathological uh, uh, patterns of behavior, are attracting a lot of attention. But I'm also interested as a sociologist in these kind of people who also entered the, the parliament on January 6th last year in the US. And these, for instance, this person is a former higher uh, uh, official or officer from the uh, uh, US Army, a lieutenant colonel, carrying with him tie webs, plastic tie webs that you can use and that he aimed to use to uh, uh, catch Mike Pence, the vice president, and uh, uh, get him to an, uh, a certain uh, kind of uh, own legal system. And the official uh, political system, official legal system, was not uh, uh, doing a good job. And therefore, this normally quite respectable kind of uh, person is an example of a person who takes the right into his own hands. And that, that is what you see uh, quite often. Uh, for instance, um, here in the Netherlands, we had a, a, a person fighting for quite extreme Christian uh, views, 
uh, for uh, talking about it on uh, a podcast, videocast for injustice television and uh, uh, going to the uh, house of uh, one of our ministries, ministers. <coughs> Perhaps more, even more interestingly, you see at different kinds of demonstrations, for example, against the, the corona measures in this country, uh, or the January 6 uh, incident in Washington, D.C., you see people taking with them gallows to, to symbolize, okay, what we will do, we will get those who are responsible for these terrible corona measures or for these terrible handling of the political uh, elections, and we will uh, prosecute them in our own ways, not in the official legal system, but we will talk, take justice in our own uh, hands, and then probably they will end up being punished by using this ghetto. And, and I find that, uh, and these are of course symbols of, of people being very frustrated of what's going on in society, but I find this very worrisome. Um, so therefore I'm uh, interested in, okay, let's take a, a step back and what is driving people's trust in social institutions? And many different things are important. I only have 20 minutes perhaps 25, if Beatrice is very nice to me. And uh, therefore, I would like to focus on uh, only a couple of issues. Trust in government, law, and science, informational and personal uncertainty, and we should not equate those uh, two issues with, uh, with each other, and also the psychology of perceived procedural justice. For instance, one of the uh, issues that, that is really driving our research uh, program, okay, what is going on? And not only with awkward kind of people or people who have uh, psychopathological uh, kind of problems. I, we are also very interested in this. But also with a person uh, doing his or her groceries at a supermarket or a shopping uh, mall. So for instance, we go to shopping malls or we go to train stations and we ask them how much trust they put in um, various uh, uh, social institutions including the legal system. So for instance, uh, we examine uh, what people think about trust and justice. And we go to shopping malls, train stations, and we ask them, would you uh, please, uh, we are uh, interested in what people think about uh, judges in this uh, country, the Netherlands, and how much trust they uh, put in it, would you would like to uh, complete a short questionnaire? And when people agree to do so, they uh, uh, open up an envelope and fill a questionnaire uh, out uh, on their own, put the questionnaire back into the envelope, seal it, and gave it, gave it back to the experimenter. And the experimenter uh, is uh, presenting her, in this case, herself, as what we normally do when we uh, do research at the law school. What we do, <coughs> we dress up, and we introduce ourselves uh, saying, hi, I'm Mary Claire from the law school at Utrecht University or Leiden University, and we are interested in what you think about trusting uh, judges. Or having a different affiliation, we dress up uh, a bit less uh, formally, a bit more informally, uh, coming uh, from uh, the psychology department at Utrecht or Leiden universities. And we contrasted that with another uh, type of condition where the uh, same experimenter presented herself as Priscilla coming from the regional uh, community college and dressing up much more informally. And what we uh, saw when, we, uh, when people then answered how much trust they put in Dutch uh, judges and not at all to uh, very strong uh, uh, high levels, 
what we see when people are interviewed with, uh, with the person from the law school or the psychology uh, department, they are giving on average quite reasonably high levels of uh, trust in uh, judges. And that's a pattern what we see in, in many types of uh, studies and also in trust surveys uh, done in Europe and elsewhere. However, importantly, when those with a lower educational level were uh, completing the, the questionnaires from a regional community college interviewer, then the tr mean trust levels dropped significantly. And perhaps even more interestingly, they also gave back the questionnaire with a different kind of uh, statement saying, well, these judges really don't know what we are living through. They don't understand what's going on in this country. And we did not hear these kind of statements at all when dressing up nicely and coming from the law school or dressing somewhat informally coming from the psych department. And we replicated this with a uh, male uh, interviewer dressing up nicely from the law college, uh, informally from the psych department or even more informally from the regional community college, same kind of pattern. A different kind of female interviewer, same kind of pattern. We also had a, uh, an experiment where we, uh, we had a, uh, let's say, a, normally kind of dressed kind of person going out there, asking people whether they would like to participate in study. And it was only then when they uh, got an envelope, opened it up on their own, that they found out, okay, this uh, study is from the law school, is from the uh, psych department, or is from the regional community college. And then we obtained a similar kind of pattern of effects. Weaker, of course, because this is a weaker manipulation when you, when you compare it to also dressing up and do all these kinds of things. But still, we found a similar kind of pattern of effects. And what we think is important is that we, uh, as university researchers, quite often miss uh, a certain kind of weakened levels of trust in important uh, social institutions, including uh, the legal system, including people representing that uh, system, such as judges. And we are interested in, okay, what, how do people exactly form judgments of, for instance, trust? And one issue that plays an important role is informational uncertainty, that we define as having less information available than you ideally would like to have in order to be able to confidently form a given social judgment. And we did several studies on uh, that. Here we'd like to focus on the issue of uh, uncertainty in terms of what we call the fundamental so social dilemma. And uh, Anna Lind refers to that as people wanting to know whether they can trust others and institutions that have power over them. And people are, uh, to a strong extent, information-oriented beings confronted with the issue, can I trust those others and those institutions and those people inter, uh, representing those institutions? Can I trust the government, including the civil servant, the police officer? Can I trust the legal system, including the judge? Can I trust the political system, polit politicians? Can I trust science and indeed scientists? For instance, during the COVID uh, crisis and corona vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. Can I trust scientists? And quite often people don't, don't have uh, very good accessible information that is really relevant to uh, how much trust they can put in these people and in these institutions that are uh, represented by these people. 
So what people are uh, busy with is f trying to form a, uh, a personal contract. You uh, would like to uh, know, okay, I'm um, surrounded by uh, uh, trustworthy kind of uh, people that uh, are representative of uh, power holders in this uh, country. And what you do, you rely on how fairly these people treat you or others. What kind of fairness impressions do they uh, make uh, for you? And especially uh, people are quite sensitive, we argue, to perceived procedural justice. Am I treated, and what, how do we define that? Eh? That you are treated fairly in a just, and able to voice your opinions and that the opinions are listened uh, to in a serious uh, manner. That you uh, are treated in polite and respectful manners. And that the people whom you interact with, such as a civil servant, a politician, a scientist, uh, are competent professional uh, people and ensure that you are treated as an important member of your group or society as a person who really matters. And those are important issues. And for instance, when we uh, run uh, studies uh, with uh, the Ministry of the Interior here in this country, we, we use this kind of approach. So for instance, when people ha have some complaints about how uh, the uh, cities are handling their complaints about, for instance, they want to uh, build a, a new shed in their uh, gardens or things like that, it's, it's administrative law. And when there starts to be a conflict between the citizen and the uh, city, one uh, an, a citizen uh, official reads into the dossier and thinks what's going on and then picks up the phone and start to have a conversation with the citizen in question. And quite often uh, that works uh, quite well. When people, that is when citizens uh, perceive these uh, 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 interactions as uh, high level, having high levels of uh, perceived procedural justice. They are more satisfied with the outcome they uh, reach during the, uh, uh, this interaction. They have more trust in uh, government and they're more likely to uh, adhere uh, and trust that they and the, the, uh, the city involved will adhere to the uh, outcome that they reached together. Importantly, those issues of perceived procedural justice matter, that is they hang together with uh, high levels of, for instance, trust in uh, judges, in police judges cases, traffic offenses and uh, cases of administrative law. They hang together with perceived procedural justice and trust in judges quite nicely when outcomes are judged to be relatively favorable by the litigants involved. But it is even more important this association is even stronger, is, uh, is uh, depicted in a, by a steeper line when uh, outcomes are perceived to be unfavorable. So uh, uh, trust in judges is associated with perceived procedural uh, justice when things are going well, but when things are getting worse, it's, uh, it seems to be even more important. And what is also important uh, that Perceived procedural justice is, uh, is relevant uh, not only for those, for instance, with a high education uh, or uh, having a high uh, position in society, but also with those who uh, experience a lot of distance between themselves and, for instance, the judges. And so, 
uh, with uh, low distance between the litigants and uh, the judges, uh, we see that perceived procedural justice le leads to uh, increase of legitimate power uh, associated with those uh, judges, but this effect is even stronger when people uh, are experiencing a high distance between themselves and the judge in question. Uh, so suggesting that perceived procedural justice really matters, uh, also in terms of uh, when uh, outcomes are unfavorable and when psychological distance is quite uh, high. What I also would like to highlight is that uncertainty is uh, quite often not uh, very nice, and especially when people are uncertain about themselves, so that when we are encountering uh, personal uncertainty. And we define that as a subjective sense of, of doubt or instability in self-use, world-use, or an interrelation between the, the two, quite often falls, involves explicit and implicit feelings about uh, yourself. You really feel uncertain uh, about yourself, and that typically um, personal uncertainty typically constitutes an aversive or at least an uncomfortable kind of uh, feeling. Well, we wrote several uh, uh, papers on that, where, for instance, one thing uh, that we examined is the association with what we call the human alarm system. So the idea is that you really need to rely on, okay, the impression, I can trust these power holders, I can trust Beatrice, that she will not cut me off in an uh, indecent uh, kind of manner, for example. Um, and you want to know that people are really fair and just uh, towards uh, you, especially those who have uh, uh, power. And, uh, and th those issues are important when things are going well, but especially when there are alarming events and things are not going very well, such as unfavorable outcomes, high uh, psychological distance. And we also uh, tested that to the extreme, you could say, by, in, in, for instance, a field experiment in Amersfoort, which is a really nice uh, study, research-wise, because it's a, a small city in the center of the Netherlands, where for some reason people from all over the country come to do their shoppings. So we had a somewhat representative kind of uh, sample. And people answered there several scenarios about how they were treated at their workplace. So they were mentioning that uh, things were going, in, uh, they had a fair supervisor or an unfair supervisor. And they were completing that uh, questionnaire while uh, behind the experimenter was on a small pedestal there was our experimental manipulation, namely a flashing light. And the manipulation was the flashing light is switched on or switched off. And what we uh, see is that um, especially when uh, things are alarming, when, uh, for instance, when a, a, a flashing light is uh, on, or for instance, on the computer screen, people see a big exclamation uh, uh, mark, uh, then uh, people are more in need of uh, perceived procedural justice. They are more in need of fair uh, treatment and find it very aversive when they are treated uh, unfairly, for instance, by the supervisor. Uh, and we also see that in, a, for instance, a pilot fMRI experiment, when people are watching um, a big exclamation uh, mark that activates uh, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex, Brotman area 9, which is associated, that's also activated when people are excluded from important groups and important uh, uh, social categories in uh, society. That's also activated when people are involved in uh, highly personalized moral judgments uh, or uh, when uh, people are processing uh, cognition and effect. So it's not only 
uh, what people think is going on in society, but also what they feel. And it, this is this combination that we, is really interesting. So we think that personal uncertainty is uncomfortable and often an aversive state. People strive to cope with personal uncertainty, and one possibility is social integration, that they really feel integrated not only with their own subgroup, but with society at large. Uh, and how do they do that? Uh, how do, do they evaluate whether social integration is indeed taking place? They uh, try to evaluate the quality of their relationship with society. And a good proxy for that is fairness information. How fairly are you treated by the civil servant, the police officer, the judge, the politician, etc., etc. People are representing the uh, societal system. So in this way, fairness information provi provides a means to cope with uncertainty. Of course, much more needs to be uh, done. Yeah, but here I would like to uh, focus saying, well, focusing on how much, how people develop trust judgments in social institutions uh, is playing an important role in our modern societies, I would argue. And perhaps there's also a linkage between uh, various processes of radicalization. Uh, not only including uh, those with uh, psychopathological uh, uh, problems, for example, but especially also those who normally would be integrated quite well in society. And what can we do about uh, that? And well, perceived procedural justice is one way that might be important in that. Thank you very much. Finally, Lord Dawson presented the findings of a recent study on the fatal shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020. A major motivation for this report was the ambiguity in empirical research on extremism and terrorism. Well, thank you very much. Uh, very pleased to be here. It's uh, an excuse to come to Europe after two years of COVID is always a very pleasurable experience. Uh, I am not going to be talking about religious terrorism, though, in this talk. So it's, uh, I really, really much appreciate the uh, very uh, fine sentiments in the introduction, and it is the thing that I concentrate on mainly. But this talk, I thought because of the focus of uh, this session, uh, something else might be more appropriate. So this is based on uh, what I'm going to give you in 20 minutes. It will, be a, it will be difficult, but we'll go through the key ideas. What I'm basically going to present here are the conclusions that were reached in a report I co-authored with David Hoffman for a Canadian commission. So in Canada in 2020, we had our single largest incident of mass murder a uh, mass casualty event, a man named Gab Gabriel Wartman, out of the blue, uh, attacked his neighbors, killed them, burnt their homes down, and then proceeded for about another day and a half to drive around killing a total of 22 people and injuring, oh, dozens of other people. He started by killing people he knew, and he graduated to just killing people he drove past. He did kill a police officer in this process, and the the other thing that makes it unique about uh, Gabriel Wartman is that he had created a perfect replica of the police uniform, a perfect repl replica of a police cruiser or a car. And so part of the reason it was very hard to track him and bring him to, you know, for the police to finally stop him was because they couldn't differentiate him from themselves. 
I mean, perfect. He'd done everything down to the precise detail. So this, needless to say, perplexed people in Canada. The police, in truth, didn't handle this episode very well, so it led to the government creating a commission to investigate what had happened. Part of the commission, of course, was to try and get some sense of what could the research literature, uh, what advice could the research literature provide to the commissioners, the three commissioners, to figure out a little bit about his motivation and his background. So what we did was um, attempt as best we could in a limited time frame, right? Because you're always given less time than really would ideally like in this circumstance to review the literature, some of the literature that we thought would be pertinent. And the literature we were looking at was on lone actor terrorism and on public mass murderers. And we looked at that literature because of recent research, which is looking at the two in combination. So the most contemporary research suggests there's a convergence in the profiles, using quotation marks, of these two types of violent offenders. So, and that wouldn't, of course, 10 years ago, no one would have thought that lone actor terrorists or terrorists in general would necessarily share much in common with uh, public mass murderers. Turns out, in fact, there's a really strong element of commonality, but certain key well. So as I say, we didn't have a time to survey. This is a quite massive literature. We focused on about 50 studies. Some of these studies, about six of them, were actually systematic reviews of the literature. So in fact, we were actually encompassing a lot more literature, but of course, we're relying on what the other scholars had acquired through their systematic reviews. Uh, partly this focus was reflecting the fact that David Hoffman and myself are actually terrorism scholars. So we're not experts on public mass murderers uh, or mass shooters, as they're often called in the United States. Um, what I wanted to talk about here today, I'm going to give you the nine conclusions that we passed on to the commissioners, but I can't give you the empirical data that would take us too long. I'm literally just going to give you the ideas, right? So if you wanted to go at them and understand why we came to those nine conclusions, this commission, this report is available to the public at the site. So if you were to go online and just go Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission, you'll be able to track down this report. There's also another very good report by uh, some American scholars looking specifically at the gender aspect of this and issues about masculinity and uh, anti-feminist attitudes on the part of Gabriel Wartman. Now, I'm giving you this data because this information or ideas is interesting in and of itself, but given what I thought was sort of the focus here of this group, the other thing that I'm more interested in is to look at this whole issue of complexity of knowledge. Because one of the greatest problems we're encountering now as terrorism studies is truly maturing, and studies of violent extremism in a broader sense are maturing, and as Sophia has partially indicated, and I'll be talking about as well, the psychological literature available, the large data studies and otherwise on these groups are really quite, you know, we've had dramatic gains in the last 10 years even. Uh, we are reaching a point of a certain maturity in our knowledge, which is absolutely fascinating and excellent, something we've been waiting for for quite some time. But of course, what comes with that is tremendous complexity and the sheer volume of information 
and in the complexity of the kinds of analysis now being introduced in uh, many of these studies. And that, I think, poses an even more than normal problem uh, for the translation of knowledge, especially for practitioners. The group that I co-founded and co-direct in Canada, it's designed to bring government policy officials together with researchers and to some extent with practitioners. So a lot of our work is in trying to, well, get research that serves the needs of policy, that's policy relevant, but also <coughs> trying to get research that, is, that can be translated and, and put into policy in some sense, right? And so this knowledge translation issue keeps cropping up over and over again. And I think it's reaching the point where we need some kind of more systematic institutional response. I'm just reflecting on that at this point. So these nine conclusions. Okay, first one is, would fit, I'm gonna use this, it'd be easier to look at. There is a kind of broad profile for the perpetrators of mass casualty incidents. Oh, and by the way, maybe I, I think I didn't, it was on the slide, it's worth noting this. The vast majority of this literature is focused on the United States. Part of our report was also to do a survey of the situation in Canada. And so to just reflect on an issue that everyone hears over and over again, but it's just further data to it. Using as careful analysis as we could, from 1970 forward in Canada, we were able to identify 41 mass casualty incidents. I don't know the official figures, but there are roughly probably about 41 mass casualty incidents in the course of a month or two in the United States. So it does reflect that in Canada, even though we're right next to the United States, and in Canada, we have gun control, but not as strenuous as most people would like. And there's tremendous uh, movement now, partly because of this event, to have stronger gun control. There's a cultural difference here that matters, isn't there? Because somehow we only have 41 incidents in the United States, just literally within stone's throw in most cases across the border, you have much higher levels. So there is a kind of, go back to the, the first conclusion, there is a kind of broad profile. It's what you'd expect, right? They're males, they're white males, they're in the mid-30s up into the 40s. Uh, and you're not gonna always read all of this. You can read it, it for yourself. You know, majority are single, about 40% had some kind of previous criminal conviction or a history of mental, uh, diagnosed mental illness. Uh, a sizable number of them come from marginalized aspects of the population. Uh, there is some evidence of suicidal ideation, uh, but not sufficient to say that there's any connection between suicidal ideation and why they per perpetrated an instance of mass uh, uh, casualty. The more interesting thing that's growing out of the data is the profile is changing. That's kind of the stereotype, right? If I asked you who is a mass public murderer, you'd probably be able to come up just from popular knowledge with that kind of definition. But it is actually starting to change. So that we're getting more non-white perpetrators. It's a bit older, the perpetrators. Far more of them are married or in, in long-term relationships. Gabriel Wartman had been in a long-term relationship 20 odd years with his common law spouse. Higher levels of education, in some cases, markedly higher level, and uh, much more of them are employed and are not socially marginalized if you can use employment as a, as a measure of that. We're seeing more mass casualty events that seem to be, in the literature, there's a different way of uh, creating typologies to sort out these events. 
I'm not going to go through that typology here, but more of these attacks seem to be revenge motivated. That means they're less planned, more spontaneous. Uh, they have a more direct link to some kind of specific precipitating event. Uh, a divorce, being uh, fired from a job, something of that nature, and, or an insult on the part of a neighbor or something of that nature. Now, some of this change just reflects demographic changes. I mean, let's take something as simple as going from white to non-white. Well, that's just reflecting shifts in the population, right? Higher levels of education, that is in parallel with uh, corresponding shifts in the population. But it's not really known. This work hasn't been done yet to really tease out the significance of these change, other than the change is happening. So the profile is not strong. The traditional profile still is largely applicable, but we have to be aware that it's starting to diversify. It's starting to become a less stereotypical phenomenon. Now, here's sort of one of the key things I wanted to focus on. And I'm just using two quickie terms uh, to, from methodology to summarize it. And that is, when you go into this data, you end up encountering issues of equifinality and multifinality. And there's the definition of them there. The long and short is all I'm saying is most of the research, the earlier research, and when I say earlier, it could even just be 10 years ago, was encountering these problems but didn't fully recognize it or understood it. The later research, like Paul Gill and all of his colleagues at London School of, of uh, uh, University College London, they're really increasingly aware of this. And what it really amounts to is you, we're able to track factors much better now, statistically, figure out what's relevant, what's not relevant, or what's prevalent, I should say, and not prevalent. But it is becoming increasingly apparent that there are very complex relationships between these variables. So people who start in a similar place can end up in a similar place but the variables that are relevant for why that happens can be extremely different. Or they could be the same variables, but operating in different ways and in different combinations. And we have people who can start in different places and end up the same place, right? The place of violence, but through complex variables. So this is really important to understand the complexity of the interaction of all these variables, but even when you're a, a scholar used to reading this material and you're reading these studies, it rapidly becomes overwhelming. So I was involved, partly this is prompt because I was involved in a session at the Stockholm Criminology Symposium in June in Stockholm, obviously. And it was a panel with countering violent extremism uh, practitioners. And we were dealing with one of these studies, a very elaborate study, and it was, obvious to me that the practitioners had not really understood some of the key sort of consequences or implications of the study we we're talking about. And I don't mean that in a sense to be critical of them at all because it took me a tremendous amount of time studying the variables and really thinking about it to even figure this out. There's no way someone who is busy practicing in a group or a, a community uh, context to prevent violence to possibly figure out this information. And I'm kind of casting ahead. What I'm saying is it's not good enough to just keep publishing this material and hope that a few times kind of ad hoc basis, various scholars like us 
may read it through for others and try and reduce some of the information to manageable uh, bits. I think that we've reached a point where we're doing a disservice to everything, research, policy, practitioner level, if we don't start seizing this knowledge translation issue and, uh, and doing something as approaching it in a more systematic way. We're having a mushrooming of information, a mushrooming of violent threats, a trans, the threats are changing, as Sophia has indicated, right, and morphing. And even if her data is correct, this issue of psychopathology, which we're going to be talking about shortly, is changing, right, depending on the nature of the group. So the fourth conclusion was, um, even i got to read them again. Uh, let's see. Okay, so this is my point of it coming out that when you look at these complex patterns of interactions of variables, it's now becoming, because we have more detailed information on many more variables, and most importantly, the way the variables interact, the patterns of their interaction, now it's becoming increasingly apparent that lone actor terrorists, that is someone who's perpetrating an act of violence for a clear ideological reason, really doesn't differ that much in many ways from individuals who are perpetrating these acts for other more personal reasons and reasons having to do with social issues and complexity. So just to reduce it to a real simple basis, we have to look at this thing more dimensionally, right? We've got to recognize in this case, we're talking about you know less alone, less mentally ill, more directed, more ideological. This is group-based terrorists. Lone actor terrorists somewhere in the middle, solo mass murderers uh, are, have higher levels of all these things. Now, of course, what we really need to start understanding, which is where the complexity comes, is develop the criteria. These are nice crude criteria, but develop criteria for understanding how people are, move along through these dimensions, right? Now, a large... This is what we've been talking about a little bit here through what Sophia presented. Uh, a large minority of public mass murderers, and when I use that heading, I'm encompassing the lone actor terrorists under that larger heading, do have a history of mental illness. There's a lot of difficulty in the literature in terms of how the different kinds of mental illness are defined, measured, whether they're using uh, actual diagnoses or self-reports, even if it's diagnoses, of course, from country to country, how that's done is different. Uh, I'll give you, you have to be very careful in using this literature because some of the literature, for example, even here in the Netherlands, actually uses police reports on this. Now, you can stop for a moment and realize that it's probably not reliable to make strong conclusions about the mental state of perpetrators of acts of mass violence by what the police have recorded is their mental state, right? Because then they're not professionals and there's certain biases that will come out there, et cetera. So what we don't understand, as I said though, is exactly the links between the elements of psychopathology. Now remember, it's only a large minority and what I always like to stress, and this comes out in the context of religious uh, uh, terrorism, is that if you say, 36% have some kind of diagnosed mental illness, and I'm not going to give you an exact number because it goes from 30s to low, low 30s to low 40s, depending on the study you're looking at. So it's somewhere in that ballpark. But if you say 36%, 
you've got to pause and realize that means 65, 70% don't have a diagnosed mental illness. So mental illness in itself is, of course, not an explanation for what's happening. But even in the cases where it is uh, an explanation for what's happening, the literature strongly suggests through these large, complex relationships that the mental illness, has, there has to be intervening variables. So it's usually mental illness in conjunction with other social variables, which could be alienation, which could be marginalization, which could be lack, lack of social trust, which could be specific community experiences or group experiences, not even individual experiences. Because the social psychological literature also shows that for a person to be moved to actually take action, maybe in these cases as well, it has to be more than just about themselves. It has to be because of their identification with a group and a group that they think is under threat in some way. And so it's that sense that even if you're a lone actor with maybe some degree of mental health, the ideology, et cetera, plays a role because it links you into a larger cause, a larger movement. That might even just be in cell, which is a really kind of uh, side one. QAnon maybe is a better instance in the sense that you think that you're saving the United States from some kind of cabal. But if we're talking about other groups, there are these important intervening variables. So in terms of the commissioners, we're trying to get them to realize it'll be hard to do in the case of Gabriel Wartman but to figure out what is going on here. Don't reduce this just to some kind of mental health issue. Don't reduce it to just his immediate grievances. Understand how he probably must have been seeing himself as part of a larger phenomenon. He, in his own case, actually had no history of diagnosed mental illness. He had had run-ins with the law before, but he was a denturist, so he's actually a professional. He was reasonably well off. He had quite a bit of money. but. He had just withdrawn $450,000 in cash and buried it at his house because he did not trust the banks any longer. In the wake of climate change and then the pandemic, he felt the world was going to collapse and he had to prepare for it. But then there were a lot of gender issues. He had a lot of issues surrounding his partner, etc. So it gets complex. So another conclusion, these are just generals, these conclusions aren't necessarily linked, but the sixth conclusion that we reach from the literature is that while we are seeing more unplanned, sort of spontaneous attacks, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of mass casualty incidents actually involve substantial planning. Is that, I can't see, is that two minutes? <laughs> okay. I'm close to the end anyways. The most involved substantial planning. Wartman, we don't know that he was planning to do an attack like this. It seems somewhat spontaneous when he attacked, but as I indicated to you, he'd spent years collecting police paraphernalia, replicating an RCMB police uniform perfectly, like not like um, uh, Brevik, uh, Anders Brevik, created a police uniform, but it wasn't really quite accurate. It fooled people, but Wartman created one right down to every last sort of detail. And the police car, the only reason the police were able to finally do it is that the actual sort of serial number, whatever it is on the cruiser, was a fictitious one. And so they actually had to send out to their own police a picture of the car with a circle, you know, saying, 
look for this number. And so then the RCMP started scanning each other. At one point, uh, one set of police opened fire on another set of police. That's how bad it got. <laughs> so but, so they, there's this, this high level of planning, and that's important to sort of take away messages from that. And that's also then works. It's not opposed to a psychopathology thing. It's complex, right? But it does work a little bit against the gain, reducing this in any way to psychopathology because of the level of planning and often involving years, certainly months of time in planning. Uh, a significant minority of the perpetrators, oh yeah, engaged in leakage, which is something that Sophie all know all about. So this is just something that some of you probably have, have read in literature. Leakage is just a term for, they talk about what they plan to do. So we know exactly, it's broken down from the data from multiple studies now, roughly, you know, uh, to what extent they will talk about different aspects of what they're doing. So I'm just speaking very generally here, but a very high percentage of them provide a substantial amount of information to friends, relatives, but even post it publicly about what they intend to do and why they intend to do it. So this, the trouble is in our neighbors or relatives afterwards with Wartman, numerous of the neighbors said they'd had all these conversations with him. But this is the bystander problem, right? Nobody had thought it significant enough to actually tell someone in authority. So there's that issue, which in Canada we need to raise more attention to. But also, a lot of it happens online. And then the trouble is it just gets lost in the huge you know, waves of information online. Um, yes, now I, this is a bit controversial, but, and I can't give you any evidence for this out of citing one study. The final impression you get from reading 50 plus studies dealing with these kinds of individuals and data about them is this business about grievance. These are individuals, I can't do it in some elaborate social psychological way, it's just you're overwhelmingly recognized that almost every single one of these perpetrators is absolutely preoccupied about some grievance. The grievance may be quite trivial from an outsider's perspective, but it becomes pivotal to their lives. Now, they're not obsessed in a sort of uh, diagnosable sense, but they are sort of obsessed in any kind of common sense uh, way. And so the other thing we're trying to say to the commissioners is that in terms of advice for the future, the only thing you could provide to officials and police, et cetera, is perhaps to you know, try and increase people's awareness of people who are, you know, have grievances and are sort of dwelling on the grievances, and if they're starting to engage in preparatory actions to do something about the grievances, hence linking to the, uh, to the leakage issue. And the last thing that's stressed in the literature right now, like Emily Corner talks about this now in her recent publications, is that most of the data we have is about the presence or prevalent, uh, prevalence of certain factors. And we really are quite advanced now in understanding a lot of this. But because of the complexity of this interactive character of the variables and how the variable, the patterns of interaction are somewhat idiosyncratic from case to case, we really have a problem with relevance of determining from variable to variable or factor to factor, which are the really the relevant ones we need to start focusing in on whether it's from a psychological, social, uh, social perspective or 
Some people might argue economic. I don't think there's solid evidence that economic factors are important enough. And then I was just coming back in conclusion then to this final point that I know it's, it's a bit light at this point, uh, but with just 20 minutes, I just wanted to stress this, that it's a pipe dream of mine to see maybe nationally on a national basis or something, some kind of bodies to be created uh, I know a lot of young academics would love to do this, right? Some wouldn't, but some would love to do it. I'm a kind of person that has a sort of synthetic, analytic, synthetic mind. I don't do a lot of original research. I've done some original field research. I'll admit I'm a person that likes to take what everybody else has discovered and make sense of it by putting it all together and figuring out the bigger you know, relevance and patterns to it. Uh, from the beginning of even creating TSAS, we weren't able to pull it off. I would love to find some mechanism uh, by which we could be summarizing relevant fields of research, you know, ones that are seen as policy relevant or practitioner relevant, and really producing valuable product coming out the other end. Some of you may know CREST, the British organization. CREST comes close to doing what I'm talking about because they have a sufficient budget, they're able to have actual um, graphic uh, designers and they produce nice glossy works that capture ideas. I think some of their publications are going a little too far in the direction of sort of glossy presentation of the ideas. But we, Cress is one grant to one group doing a bit of this. Uh, little bits and pieces are being done by think tanks, but the think tanks are all in competition with each other and they're all just competing to, you know, uh, find their little niche and their things where they're going to sp spread their ideas. As I say, maybe it's a pipe dream, but I think it would be lovely to have uh, groups organized that in some way could be on a systematic, continuous basis, uh, surveying the literature and not producing systematic reviews. We have enough Campbell systematic reviews. It's summarizing the results of the systematic Campbell's reviews in a way that, as I say, translates the knowledge down to other levels, including me, fellow scholars that don't know all about experimental social psychology and would like to know more about the findings from experimental social psychology, which I actually find myself reading quite a bit of, but is overwhelming. The amount of experimental data that comes out in any week in the United States in the main journals of social psychology is staggering. It's, I, I don't know how anyone in a, even any field in social psychology stays on top of it. Okay, thank you very much. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.